Welcome to the Be Real podcast. I am your host, Diana Gasparoni. I am a visionary psychotherapist, CEO, and founder of Be Well Psychotherapy and Be Her programs. Along with my amazing co-hosts, Anisha Salisbury and Divya Robin, each week we will talk about the journey of mental health wellness. We will talk about why your mental health is just as important as your physical health and the connection that being mentally well has on all areas of your life. We will be interviewing psychotherapists from various disciplines and schools of thought, doctors from both Eastern and Western disciplines, authors, change makers, thought leaders, and more. Our mission is to bring you information that is both thought-provoking and encourages you to look closer at your mental and emotional well-being. We will give you tips and insights to taking the next steps, or if you have already gotten in the door, to go deeper. Each week, we are going to have real conversations, helping you work through your mental wellness questions, reminding you that you are not alone. Mental health is my passion. I practice what I preach. I know that the struggle is real. It is our mission to touch as many souls as we can with this content, leading you to a place of mental clarity and well-being. So for the next hour, let's work together and look underneath the surface and get real. Hey, hey, it's Diana Gasparoni and welcome back to Be Real. I am um, excited about today's topic, roundtable, roundtable. That's what we're having today. Anisha, you here? I am here. Yes, I am. (laughs) It's Sunday. Feeling good. Yes, we are here together on, we are recording on a Sunday and you all may remember this voice from the first episodes and we have snagged her and her very busy schedule and gotten her to come back and hang out with us. Hey, Divya. Hi, everyone. It's so good to be back here. Thanks for having me. Well, I mean, first, I think what we should do is uh, let everybody know where you've been. (laughs) Yeah. Where have you been, Divya? I mean, I've seen you, obviously, a couple times sporadically throughout the weeks. But you, you, some stuff, maybe one or two things has happened in your life. Yeah. Oh, my gosh. I believe we recorded the first episode in February. So that feels like ages ago. Well, we did it at one. We did it in an office. So it definitely was ages ago. All together. together. No face masks. Times were very different. Um, That was when we were all still in the city. So since then, I don't reside in the city right now. So I moved out of the city just for a little bit. Um, So for the last three months, I've been out of the city and I finished up school. So that was very exciting. Congratulations on graduating. Thank you. So that was another big milestone that happened. And yeah, I've been staying in the suburbs. I've been living with my fiance's parents. So that's been really fun. It's been a new environment. Our topic today is not going to be what it's like to be to replaced with your fiance's parents. (laughs) Although that we could shelf as a real mental health topic. (laughs) I mean, we really could. Communication. Yeah, that that could have been in that one. (laughs) Yeah, that one is, uh, it's relationships. It's, uh, there's so many. Your in-laws. I mean, Mm -hmm. that's, you're new, you're soon to be in-laws. I mean, there's a lot in there, but Mm -hmm. we will, we're not going to put you in the hot seat for that one today, but we might, (laughs) we might, we might want to, we might want to dig in. 
topic to cover today. But maybe it's, that one can hold up. It's true. And now also, you are in a different phase than uh, we are because you uh, we're in New York City and you are not. You ate outside today. You got waited on. Somebody brought yes. you a glass of wine to the table. Yes. <laughs> I seriously forgot what that feels like. And I'll be honest, when we were sitting out in the patio, I just felt like I was doing something bad. Like I shouldn't be out there. <laughs> I was like doing, like, I, I just felt, I don't know. And it's so funny to feel that way when you're outside. But yeah, this week in Massachusetts, they opened up outdoor dining. They're on stage two. So things are mostly opening up, like salons are opening up and um, people in the household here all got haircuts the other day. So everyone's looking fresh again. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, things are opening up. So it's definitely different to hear what's going on with people who are living in New York City because we are in a very different place over here. I do live across the river in New Jersey. We and I am getting my haircut next Saturday. I'm looking that, forward to it. That is exciting. I can't lie. It is something I am very much looking forward to. I really wish, though, somebody else was going to wash my hair, but that's just a luxury issue. That <laughs> <laughs> It's my favorite part. I don't necessarily really like the haircut itself is fine, but like having somebody wash my hair is my favorite part. I digress. Uh, are you are you planning a, a self-care for phase two, Anisha? Um. I am. Actually, I'm not in a hurry to get my nails done. I have figured out how to do that on my own. So I'm very proud of myself. So I have given myself manicures and pedicures during this time. I think I'm just really, I look forward to seeing my friends. I think that's the most important thing for me and my family because those mm-hmm. I, I miss my friends. I, I miss the people that I love and just kind of hanging out will be nice. So I think I'm looking forward to that. <laughs> I pause it. Like, cool, right? I like, it was so beautiful. And you're like, I want to be around people. And I'm like, I want to get my hair cut. <laughs> we can, I will examine my narcissism later. Anyway. I've also chopped off all my hair in quarantine. So that is something that I'm not really worried about right <laughs> you're now. You're not really worried about. Yeah. Um, and I have, I'm learning to live without a manicure and a pedicure, but we will see. Uh, I don't know how I feel about phase two or if I'm going to feel like I'm doing something wrong. Conditioning was so quick, right? And now we have to recondition ourselves to do the next phase or whatever that's going to look like. Anxiety producing, I think. Like what's right? Like, because it's still unknown. Um, So today uh, we are going to, because this episode is actually going to air at the end of the month and um, it will be on the precursor to Minority Mental Health Month. And so when we got together to talk about what we were going to talk about at this roundtable, Divya actually, who is the person who knows these things, she makes sure that we know (laughs) what (laughs) not only what month it is, but also what is being highlighted. And she and the three of us all decided that this would be a very important conversation, most specifically because of everything that is going on in the world right now. So uh, I think we should start with our very first question is why is there a need to have Minority Mental Health Month in July when we have Mental Health Month in May? When I thought about the question, the first thing I thought about is the lived experiences of racial, cultural, ethnic minorities in America is just very different from white America for which mental health treatment was based, right? So it's like this one size fit all model that doesn't fit. <laughs> um, right. So when, you know, when I think about myself, my, my mental health is impacted 
you know, differently due to my race, ethnicity, gender identity, sexual identity, religion. You know, when I think about my clients and I think about minorities, I'm thinking like, do they know that their mental health is important and it needs special attention? Do they know that they don't have to endure like life's pains without help? So I think it is important to have a month to kind of highlight that because it also raises awareness about mental health. Um, just kind of like talking more about educating, right? Like educating people on warning signs, right? Like, so do people know, like if you have a friend and they like are sad or withdrawing or you see changes in appetite or sleeping, maybe they need to talk to somebody or just like the different mental health conditions that we have, anxiety, depression, you know, the whole list and just like resources to get help. So I think that it kind of highlights those things among other things. I mean, exactly with what Anisha said for me when I think of Minority Mental Health Month. So I mean, this month is relatively new, right? It was only founded in 2008. And Mm -hmm. that was when people started to have awareness and education about the disparities that many minority populations have in mental health and how they might have barriers in seeking mental health services. And echoing what Anisha said, that a lot of mental health care is based Actually, I'm not even going to say a lot. Most mental health care is based in a very white Western framework. And so so May is the time to bring awareness to mental health when we're bringing that awareness a lot. It's basically specific to white populations and not people of color, people from different ethnic minorities, sexual minorities, religious minorities. It's for that white population that mental health treatment is framed towards. And so Mental Health Minority Month, or Minority Mental Health Month, sorry, is really to talk about the disparities and how we can raise awareness for those populations as well. I actually have read about a study that was done. Um, The Agency for Healthcare Research and Quality, AHRQ, they report that racial and ethnic minorities are less likely to have access to mental health services, Mm -hmm. less likely to use community mental health services, maybe due to stigma, and also more likely to receive lower quality care because they might not have culturally competent um, providers. So poor mental health care, access, and quality care contributes to poor mental health outcomes. So, you know, are they talking about that during Mental Health Awareness Month? I'm not sure. So that's mm-hmm. why I think it's so important that there is a month where it is highlighted so people have a true understanding of what the barriers are and what people are up against. And a lot of the time, too, even it shows that when minorities do seek mental health services, they have the highest dropout rate because exactly what you said, maybe not having counselors that are competent in a multicultural framework and that they feel accepted and they feel seen and heard in a framework that acknowledges them and doesn't put them in the white culture and the norms of white culture. So I think that even we should reflect as clinicians on Minority Mental Health Month as how we can provide mental health care for minority populations, not only to bring awareness on their end, like, here's why mental health is important, come to therapy. But as therapists, what can we do to make people want to come to therapy and feel seen and feel accepted and to bridge those barriers? Because I think as clinicians during these months, too, we need to become advocates and we need to educate ourselves, too. It's not only the people who are seeking the treatment that need to educate themselves, it's us as well. Um, I'm pausing because I'm not sure which direction I'm going in. <laughs> so in the but in the cultural in, in the conversation that, yes, the framework is based predominantly, uh, not predominantly, it is based on uh, white culture. I mean, that's where therapy is from, right? And how to then create culturally competent 
therapists and providers who are white to be able to really work with other populations. I think about it quite often, but more so in the in the past couple of days, because what we read and what we're at, how we're educated and the information that we get for the most part, even in social work school, but most specifically in analytic training are written by white people. And so then taking that information and regurgitating and just and putting it back in, there is no cultural competence in that learning. So then where does the, where does the training come in? And I was thinking about the train, the conversation, Anisha, that you and I had with Anu and really examining the unconscious bias, because I don't think that that's something that we do in training as therapists. Like we are not really looking underneath and talking about the unconscious bias and talking like examining how white therapists are in the room and not talking about race in the room. And that is something that I know that I have talked about and talked about and talked about with other white therapists and that to see where they're where the training and where their lack of knowledge or lack of risk taking is for themselves, I think is like their own discomfort is the word I'm looking for, like how to uh, sit with their own internalized racism and examine it and then be able to work with the person in the room and have really good supervision around what's happening when they are not, when they are talking about who they're working with, how they're working and seeing results. So Yes, these are all very like, how do we bridge the gap? And how do we then make sure that when we're talking about minor, when we're talking about minority mental health during the month that we are all learning? Because I know that right now, this is a world where uh, white women, most specifically, are uh, being called to learn how we all will work together, especially during mental health month as a community to make sure that we're all talking in a way that is progressive and coming and acknowledging the differences and acknowledging the progression and growth that we want in everybody. <laughs> we just got a note from our producer, making sure that I asked a question because I did just make a statement and I didn't ask a question. So I made, I made a statement. Who wants to ask a question? <laughs> So I, I think that um, if we're going to talk about, you know, the treatment models, right? Because I think that as we talk about this, my thought came to like, do treatment models have to change? Because there's like evidence-based practices that are used. And so I was thinking like CBT. So for you guys who don't know, CBT is like a treatment for anxiety, depression, eating disorders, addiction, a multitude of things, right? So, and is an evidence-based practice, which means there has been extensive research that it's proved its effectiveness, right? But I thought about this, but who participated in the research? Were there a representative sample of ethnic minorities present when the research was done? You know, are marginalized people present when this research is done? Are we a part of the study? Does it look at individuality? Right. Um, is it, again, the whole one-size-fit-all thing? So, so what happens then, right? Like, is it time to examine some of the modalities that are used in therapy? And that would mean that white therapists, black therapists, therapists of color, we will all need to kind of come together and pay a little bit more attention to all of the modalities that we decide to use. And is it really representative of the people they serve? I'm thinking it's not. I'm thinking that there has to be a, there has to be a crossover of how we're all working so that we can take best practices from every 
from each pool and work together to create. I mean, when we're looking at it and we're talking like you and I, Anisha, we know that we work differently in the room. Yes. <laughs> There's no question. We talk, we talk about that often because you are my supervisor, right? So that's right. the interesting thing, right? So you are my supervisor. And so the way that I was taught, I learned from you, right? And these are the things that you do. These are the techniques that you use. But the beautiful thing about our relationship that I was able to say at times, Diana, that's a little bit different with black clients. And I just said it. Like, I, I remember the first day I said it to you. I don't know if I was like a little scared to say it. Like, I don't know. But I was like, I might need to tell her that. Mm, yeah, that might be a little bit different with my clients. Right. So let's I think talk. you just said it's just not going to work. <laughs> and I was like, OK, OK. So I, so I had to let you know, like, okay, let's talk through maybe another way, right? Because I have to un make sure that the care that I give is specific and customized to the individual that I'm in front of. So right. that, that's mm -hmm. been very important to me. So Divya, you know, do you experience that same thing where you're trying to make sure things are very customized and individual and maybe that evidence-based practice or whatever that modality is, maybe you have to switch it up a little bit based on the person that you're talking to. Yeah, definitely. Because the reality is that a lot of the evidence-based treatment, it, like you said, Anisha, the research that's done, the sample is not typically people of color. It's a white, usually typically middle-class population. And that's what is really there um, in the research. And yes, it's been improving slowly. Um, research is something that I am very interested in. And through a lot of my academic time, I've always been in a research lab and specifically working with issues of race, because there's not that much research done on combining clinical practice and racial issues. And so with a lot of the research we go off of and what we've been taught in training, it is from older studies that are not, I can't really use with a lot of my population, a lot of my clients. And what I have to do is find that place that I can use for interventions and techniques, but apply it and tailor it to a client's life because using in techniques that won't fit for them because the sample that was done is not on them. I, that's just doing harm. Like, how could I do that and assume that what I'm reading in research studies is the same life experiences that they have? I, I can't do that. And so that's something that I think is really important as we go into this next month to also realize and for other clinicians to realize that maybe in what they were taught in their training, it's not going to apply to all their clients. And what are ways that you can skillfully combine evidence-based practice, but also your clinical clinical practice in a way that is going to serve clients to feel heard and seen and, and healed. I hear what you're saying. And I agree that the modalities themselves, and while you were talking, I was thinking about, right, we, we learn the modality and we learn the intervention, right? And then we read the articles and the articles are based on different populations, right? Like mm -hmm. we read articles specifically about different populations and then we take it all up and we mash it up and we get in the room and we try to figure out like who's, how we're going to work with whoever's sitting in front of us. I will have to say that for me personally, evidence-based practice always makes me, me like cringe just a little bit. Like I don't, I don't come from an evidence-based practice modality that uh, background that's not like, I didn't ever uh, work in a clinic and um, I've only been in 
okay, I'm a one trick pony. I've only been in analysis <laughs> and I've only ever <laughs> done analytic work. So that's just, that's just, and it's long-term work. It is long-term mm -hmm. work, right? But I mean, it's not lost on me that I asked Anisha to go to my training institute and she came back and she was like, yeah, mm. I'm not going to be, I'm not going to be an analyst, but I think that's, but correct me if I'm wrong, <laughs> but one of the things that she did pull, she did, and she did pull out of it some stuff because it did give us a common language that we were like, you were able to understand me better and I'm able to supervise you in a different way. Yes. I think. Yeah. No, that definitely happened. And I did learn a lot from it, but I just realized that I also just had to cater, you know, try to figure out how do I cater to my client with this knowledge base that, that I have now, yes. right? Like, how do I use this in a room? And so it just kind of took time. And I think that that's where the two of us did a really good mm -hmm. job of working through that part, right? Mm -hmm. And again, yes, I could speak your language now um, because, <laughs> <laughs> but, and I don't, and I think that what's, what's important is because I also, um, you know, I'm, I'm working on Divya. Don't, don't think I'm not working on Divya and the analytic realm. I'm bringing her over here. And I, but what I think is, is important is that yes, the modalities, the, the original works are done by old white dudes, right? Like, yeah. and then we break off and we break off. And like, as we are looking for more, uh, inclusion in the work, right? How can we, how can we be more inclusive an example of you going to my, like you going to my Institute and then regurgitating it back to me in a way that made sense to you allows me to become more culturally competent. Right. And be like, okay, this is not a one, one size fits all thing. Right. Because I may not necessarily have been challenged in that area at all because the majority of my clients are white. Then I learn, I grow, you learn, you learn, you grow. Divya, I got her on the couch. So <laughs> she's, <laughs> and I don't, I'm like, I don't want to feel like I'm pushing my own personal agenda, but yeah. like what I, where I supervise from and what I know, but also like on a personal level, what I know helped me grow, right? And can this, can this then continue to become more of a, of an interesting soup? What do you think? Yeah. Divya. Well, it definitely can, because even us having these conversations, we're coming to the understanding that one size doesn't fit all right. And that Anisha's clients are not gonna, she comes to your institute and is like, maybe that's not gonna work for me. No. But then you guys can have that conversation, right? And that follow up and grow from that. And I think for me, that's the biggest way I've been able to become culturally competent more so and that's a journey right I can't ever be like oh I'm a culturally competent clinician like it's it's not it's never this place that you just get to in this award like you have to keep learning and have a growth mindset right. but because that's why so many clients of color they drop out of therapy because clinicians don't have these conversations I believe and they think it is this one size fits all so even us having this conversation and hopefully if other people hear this and then they might have conversations with their colleagues, right. That can help their practice as well. Yes. I mean, I think that at the colleague level, it's really important. And then also making sure that like, as you sit in the room, you are allowing yourself to have the conversation about the difference. That's if they're, if the person that's sitting across from you doesn't look like mm -hmm. you, then you have to be open to 
having the conversation and and analytics training with their like, don't bring it up, right? You don't bring up and you don't, you just don't bring it up. <laughs> I definitely broke that rule multiple times. I've <laughs> been like, okay, well, we're, we're going to bring it up. Everybody knows, like if I'm working with a black woman, she knows I'm white. It, there's no question about it. She didn't come in and look at me and be like, oh, that there wasn't a different conversation than that. But to like explore what it feels like to mm-hmm. be like, does she really think I'm going to be able to understand her? Like, and that is important. And then how to then be in the room and know that I may, I may up and there are things that I'm not going to understand. And then what, how, how we're going to work with that. And I think that that's where the, where the cultural competence learning comes in is that we all become comfortable with, with the differences so that we can not comfortable, comfortable with being uncomfortable with the differences is what I'm Mm -hmm. saying. The first thing I think about is, um, if you talk about analysts, you know, you think about Freud, right? And so he says that we're supposed to be, like therapists are supposed to be a blank slate, right? And I'm like, hmm, how is that really possible that I'm a blank slate, right? So for you guys who don't know me, like I always got on like a pair of shoe boots, some pumps, you know, a quirky little outfit. I have like, you know, my lipstick bl- on, not right? Slate. Not like not a blank slate. <laughs> like you can look at me and you can kind of like, you know, come to some you know, thoughts about who I am, you know, when I'm not your therapist in the room. Um, And also I understand that it is all about the client, but I do realize with people of color, they are interested in who I am. I think it's like this thing where like, I'm telling you everything about me, Anisha, right? Like, and I don't know anything about you. Like that just does not feel comfortable to me. And I understand that. Right. So I understand that there is this space where they're going to be like, Anisha, how are you doing? Right. And they don't expect me to say, well, how, how would it feel to you to know how I'm doing? Mm -hmm. Like, no, they want to actually know Mm it. They want to know where I went on vacation. So I realized that they're going to know a bit about me and I have to be comfortable with that. Right. Cause I want them to be comfortable in the room with me. Mm-hmm. I make sure that, no, the therapy session is not about me. It's always about them. If they ask yeah. a question, I'll give them like a minute where I answer and that there is this like engagement that we have, this rapport that we have. So there's a comfortability. And after that, you know, it's all about you again. But I know that I can't just go in there and not answer questions about who I am in some way. It just doesn't work for everyone. And I realized that very early. Very similar to you with that, Anisha. I mean, I think for my population as well, it is kind of the cultural norm, right? To ask (laughs) what someone is doing. And for me to be like, ask that same question, like, oh, what would that mean if you knew how I was doing? (laughs) That depends on the client. Don't want to hear that. Yeah, it depends on the client. Exactly. And like, I can understand that in some norms. And for me too, like from it coming from a South Asian background, that's rude. If you're like, excuse me, I want to, I'm, I'm caring about you. So I do the same thing because I think to be culturally competent as a therapist is also not to prescribe our norms onto them, but to like come to the norms that they have and to understand them and to sit with them in that and to adapt. And so that's my mindset when I answer questions like that as well. Okay. Well, we are going to take a break we're gonna take a break we we have a commercial and uh (laughs) we'll be back we'll be back in a bit as you know i am a huge supporter of therapy and if there was ever a time to prioritize your mental well-being it's now 
As the founder of Be Well Psychotherapy, I am proud to announce my team is leading the way in online therapy. Be Well is based in New York City, and we were one of the first practices to pivot to online therapy with the outbreak of COVID-19. With over 15 licensed therapists, Be Well offers a variety of methodologies and approaches so you can select a therapist that is a good fit for you. We help individuals of all ages, including kids, teens, couples, and wait for it, we even have online group therapy. There is no need to struggle alone with feelings of depression, anxiety, isolation, grief, or loss. To learn more, visit BeWellPsychotherapy.com or text BeWell, that's one word, to 484848 to get connected with a therapist today. Again, that's BeWellPsychotherapy.com or text BeWell, one word, B-E-W-E-L-L, to 484848 to get connected to a therapist today. And now back to our amazing show. Well, welcome back. So we have found out a couple of things over the break while you were listening to the commercial. And we have learned how long our breaks are supposed to be before we start <laughs> talking again. And also uh, realize that we are going to move the conversation into a different direction than we were originally intending. So um, I want to talk about now, ladies, the, let's look at the actual underlying causes of getting people to sit in front of us, right? So let's start Let's start with cultural. What do you think are the cultural reasons why people don't come to therapy? Why Black people don't come to therapy? So I think that you have to first start with stigma um, because asking for help is often seen as a sign of weakness, right? Mm -hmm. And some of us believe that if our ancestors could go through slavery, Jim Crow, reconstruction, why can't I get through anxiety and depression, right? So it's really hard to kind of ask for help. I think that's one of the major things. I think there's also a distrust, distrust of the healthcare system. You know, when Black people or other minorities go to the doctor. Sometimes they don't know if, you know, are you telling us the truth? I mean, for Black people, they have um, been used as guinea pigs, right, throughout history, you know, for different diseases and things like that. So there's a fear there. I think that there's a lack of providers from diverse racial and ethnic backgrounds, right? So every person of color that comes in to see a therapist will not be able to find a therapist that looks like that, right? Mm -hmm. So they're going to have to go to a white therapist. So the hope is that this person is able to kind of have a basic understanding of my culture, be able, be willing to listen to me, be, be willing to hear me and um, kind of understand me. So that I think there's a fear there. I'll let Divya give a couple more, but I think that we definitely have to look at stigma, distrust of the healthcare system and the lack of providers from, um, different racial and ethnic backgrounds. And Divya, we don't want to put you on the hook for all other uh, <laughs> communities. <laughs> no, no. I, because I yeah. did specifically ask Anisha uh, about Black people, and now I were But I do know that we do not have a Latinx woman in the room, um, which I wish we did. But you're up. Okay. So, so, so I'm going to... So, so I'll speak from... Um, the Asian American and um, from both my own experience and from what I've seen 
with my own clients and in the research, but I'm echoing a lot of what Anisha is saying. The stigma and the mistrust of the healthcare system, that looks different in my community. And so the stigma from the Asian American side is a lot of it with not having the language around emotions. The generations before us not really talking about it because they didn't have the language either. And if they weren't depressed, or at least they didn't talk about being depressed, then why am I depressed, right? Like they immigrated here and my ancestors came to America to give me a better life. And that's a lot of what I hear in clients is like, why am I not able to deal with my own emotions being in America, which is what they came all this way for. My family worked so hard to be here. And what would that say about the life they've provided me if I am struggling and almost not having the space to struggle or even the worry that if they are struggling, that is a sign of maybe being ungrateful. That's a really, really big word I hear is ungrateful. Like if I'm anxious, am I ungrateful? And so that depression, anxiety, mental health issues, they look very different from one culture to another. And a lot of it comes down to the lack of education in mental health in the South Asian culture, because people don't talk about it a lot. They don't know how to talk about it. And so it's very, I mean, that question is so loaded. I don't even know where to really go with it, but that's, that's some of what it is, right? Right. But in a different way. Well, I, I mean, I can hear it. So I definitely hear that there is a, with where Anisha's coming from, Anisha's talking about intergenerational trauma of being, of a community of people, a demographic of people that did not make a choice and that were brought to, were brought here enslaved and then have been fighting for their rights in a very different way than being immigrated into the country um, and coming here as a choice. And then in that choice, not being allowed to express your feelings, right? And in on Anisha's side, in not having a choice and not even being allowed to express any feelings. So mm-hmm. the one thing that we, where we can find a common commonality is that language for the feelings in the inside the communities and knowing that these things are actual hindrances for real, full, rich lives that mental wellness is very important and anxiety impression and anxiety and depression do exist and how do we then educate people around the cost of these things that like being and I'm I'm also speaking as I say the cost I'm speaking about this from a private practice perspective right I am not speaking about this from a clinic perspective I'm definitely we're so we're going to stay there and that in a private practice perspective and that this is something that people can afford and and should look at as a way to really as as a as a pathway to overall physical and emotional well-being so I think so so money right money so let me start let me say that I am a social worker who went to NYU so you guys can imagine what my loans look like right we'll start there (laughs) um my first the job that I had for a very long time was at a a mental health clinic and so Diane Diane and I have had a relationship for many years so when I was thinking about leaving the clinic and going into private practice, my biggest fear was, will black and brown people 
see the value in therapy and be willing to pay for it. Mm -hmm. And so Diana was trying to get me to come over to private practice for some time. And I was very apprehensive because I just didn't know. And so for you guys who are not from New York, the average cost of therapy in New York is probably $150 to $250 a session, average, we'll say, New York City, Manhattan prices. So the thought is that for a group of people who are just trying to figure out that, wait, I can go ask for help. Like, this is okay to do. I, I can kind of like not just do, but I can also feel, are, are they going to be willing to pay for therapy, right? Now, let's be real. Like, a lot of people have insurance, right? Like, so um, a lot of my clientele are, you know, people with master's degrees, PhDs, things like that. So they do have insurance, but everyone's insurance does not cover mental health, right? So let's talk about that too. So a lot of my clients do have to pay cash. What they've, what I've realized and what I've noticed that people will pay to have a safe space to talk about their emotions in a different way, right? They'll, they'll pay to be able to have this space where like, oh, I can work on how to have better, you know, communication in my relationships. Like all of these things that maybe, you know, sometimes we go to friends to kind of talk about, we start to realize like, okay, yeah, I can go to therapy for that. So when it comes to money, there was a, a real fear for me to move into private practice. However, I have to say that it's it's been going really great, right? I think that the stigma around mental health is starting to dissipate. It's, it's a slow process. And I hate to say that, but mental health is trending right now. <laughs> I think that people are realizing that, like, I'm in a lot of pain, yeah. right? Like, and how do I alleviate this? I have to start to figure out how to do something different from what I have been doing. So when mm -hmm. it comes to money, I think people now see the value mm -hmm. in talking about their thoughts, their feelings and emotions and how talking through some things can make you feel a lot better. Mm -hmm. Give you a little bit more direction. Divya, what do you think? Thank uh, you, what Anisha. I was thinking as Anisha was speaking is that her presence in the room is one providing people a space. Like what are we really doing when we are have like in a therapist, right? And what's going on in the room? And it is, yes, helping the overall quality of their life, working for toward well-being, improving relationships, improving behavioral patterns. But at the same time, it's also a way to advocate for their mental health. And like this is important. Your mental health is important. And I think and especially in a lot of minority populations that people don't really know mental health is important because they don't have a space. They don't have a person that advocates for them, that their mental health matters. And that when your mental health is in line, look at all these other benefits you can have in your life. And when people start to see those benefits firsthand, then that in itself is bringing awareness. So yeah, they're improving the quality of their life, but they're also for the first time having someone advocate for their mental health and help them see the value. And inherently with that, if resources allow, then you're able to put a price tag to it because when you don't talk about emotions, how are you going to put a price tag on how much it costs? And if you, do you know what I mean? Like when that conversation is not there. Yes. And I think that with the money part, it is a value part, right? Like a personal value part and how to understand that when you, how to communicate and educate. And I think that this is the next part of the conversation is like, where is the education? Where do we start with 
the education. I know that we've, we've, we started, we're starting it by having this conversation right here, but like in educating um, minority communities on the value and the re the relief of talking, mm -hmm. the relief of being seen and heard and understanding and, examining your thoughts and feelings in a new way. And so like, where do those, where does that conversation, that, that education piece start so that the next step is I'm going to Google therapist near me and see what happens. So you're trying to ask like, when, when, when do people, when, when do you know maybe that you should probably start to see a therapist or like seek someone out for help? I think both. I think I want to know what are some of the things for the individual if they are, if they're, if for you, if you're listening right now, like if, if what, what are some of the things that might be signs that you're ready for therapy? Or if you are a person who's listening right now, who's already taken the first step and have a therapist, how do you like hook your friends up to get on board? Friends and family, like how, what kind of conversations, what are the, what does that look like? Um, you can I'll pick just start either, with either category. Okay. I'll, I'll, go with, I'll go with some signs, right? So, um, you know, due to everything that's going on in the world today, I think that people are seeing changes in themselves, right? So if you have problems like re regulating emotions, right? Like, so if you start to pay attention, like how often or how intensely am I feeling sad or anxious or angry, Right. Like I should be paying, you know, maybe I need to talk to someone or maybe there's changes or disruptions in my sleep or my appetite or if I'm struggling with maintaining relationships. Right. Or do I no longer enjoy activities that I once enjoyed? Right. Like, am I feeling disconnected or alienated from life? And for some, just as far as like, am I thinking about death or, or, or wishing to die? Right. Because these are real feelings that people are having today and every day. Mm -hmm. So. If you are maybe noticing any of those things that I just said, it, it's time to talk to someone, right? It's, it's time to not just be in your head anymore and have all of these thoughts kind of rolling around, but find someone that you can talk to. And I'll just quickly, and then you can go ahead and jump in, Divya, but earlier today, I'm on a group chat with a bunch of my girlfriends. And of course, we're talking about everything that's going on, you know, in a country and how it's impacting. And people are actually starting to talk about anxiety. They're naming it. Right. People are talking about like I was depressed before. There was recently um, a woman who was a writer on um, a show. This is us, a black woman who committed suicide just recently. And so just talking about how people suffer in silence. And just because you are successful or you seem happy or you look happy, that doesn't mean that you still don't need someone to check in on you. So I think, and I said to them, just having conversations like that makes it easier for someone to reach out maybe and text me on a separate text and say, hey, Anisha, you know, I've been going through this and I can say, oh, okay, like I can find you a therapist. So I think it's just kind of the basic conversations about how we're feeling about what's going on in our lives and what's going on in the world can be truly helpful. Oh, that's awesome. Yeah, thanks, for sharing. thanks for sharing that story, Anisha, because I think that really highlights something I'm just about to say and that's that I think for a lot of people I've seen and situations even I've had with friends and family, it's that mental health and someone struggling with their mental health looks the same from person to person. But 
it really doesn't. It can be super different, especially in different cultures. Some express their anxiety more in somatic symptoms, right? Not as much with saying I'm feeling anxious or I'm feeling Mm -hmm. emotional, but just feeling different, feeling out of control, feeling tired, frustrated, or even, but just feeling that your body is not the same. And and I've had clients not be able to put words to it, that it's just like, I don't, this week, I've not been feeling myself. I don't know what it is. I've been feeling nauseous, had headaches, and that being what anxiety is. And even what does that feel like to be able to put a name to it and to be as clinicians, to be those ones who are like, maybe it's anxiety, because that can be really <laughs> scary to admit, right? Because we can know that anxiety doesn't always present in this like, very, you know, I think I view it a bit more in the way of America and the Western way of how we can just talk about it. But a lot of cultures, they they don't talk about, they just feel it with feeling tired, back pains, you know, nausea. And how do we talk to people that that might be what anxiety is? And that might be how their friend is experiencing anxiety. So really looking at the somatic symptoms, which I personally think are so important Mm -hmm. because I think that like when we move away from that mind body connection and we don't look at how the emotional body and the physical body work together, then we miss, we miss a huge part of what's happening with people. And um, I'm glad you said that to Thank you so much. Well, (laughs) I had so, I had so many tangents that I, I had to like, I had, I had to stop talking about, but, um, I wanted to, I don't know what I wanted to do. You look like you wanted to say something Anisha. What were you just going to say? Well, I think that, you know, I want mental health to be as important as physical health, right? I think that that is just the goal that we want to get to. And so I think it's really cool that, um, primary care physicians are now screening for depression. You know what I mean? I think it's so important that when you go in and you get that checkup and you're trying to figure out your physical health, that there is also this mental health checkup that's being done as well. Right. And Mm -hmm. of course, they may not do the same assessment that a therapist would. But what if we started to look at every year when I go get a physical right? And get that checkup. Can I also see a therapist and kind of get a mental health checkup, right? Oh, my, you talk it, you're, you're, <laughs> my dream. It's my dream. I have a fantasy that in this world, we are actually the first people that people see that your mental wellness and well-being, and that like we hear that and advocate and help most specifically women, not that men don't need it too, but like imagine if somebody came to you first and said, I'm uncomfortable and I have these feelings or not feelings, like I'm nauseous all the time. And Mm -hmm. then they had to go see a doctor. And when you're talking about taking away that trust piece with the healthcare system or being able to put your thoughts and feelings into words and being able to be heard and like really being able to like send them almost with a script that is like how, but like a script of trust, like how to ask these questions, how to be, how to be progressive about the questions, how to really say, yes, I'm, I, I'm nauseous and like not let that, not let that doctor be dis- dismissive about it. Right. And be like, Oh, well, you know, you can come back later. No, 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 no. Like I, I need you, I need you to take care of me right now. And like, what would, how would that change the narrative of how our healthcare system works? 
I mean, also there's advocacy is huge. Mm -hmm. There's a, I know. And then there's like an acupuncturist down the hall and there's some (laughs) yoga. And then there's like, I mean, there's all the things like there's some Qigong, there's, you know, a massage therapist, like all the beautiful things coming together. Dream. We're also asking people who in our society don't feel like they have a voice to have one. Mm -hmm. Right. And that's the really hard part of this. Right. Like, and those same people who don't feel like they have a voice, they've been able to say, okay, yeah, I can go to the doctor, right? Because we all view well, right. doctors as preventative care, right? But therapists are only in crisis. Like people mm-hmm. come to see us, like couples yeah. come to see us when their marriage is on the last leg, right? Like people come to see us right. when out of control. Like what if we made it a what? preventative thing and not if like- was, Right, that your mental yeah. wellness, like we're, cha- we're going to change the language because I yes. know mental health is important, but if it is is good language. It's like a baseline language. We all have some. We all already have some level of mental health, and whether we whether it's good, bad, right. super bad, right? <laughs> but like, what if it would? What would it be like if we were working towards a goal of wellness for mental health? Like, what would be the shift in your body? What would be the shift in your mindset? What would be the shift in your pro? I hate to use the word productivity, but I'm going to use it anyway. So shift in your productivity and what and how in your relationships in your communication and how you advocate for yourself i mean we just got started ladies <laughs> i mean we i think it's interesting that started. you talk about productivity right because i was reading this article and it says that depression and anxiety cost the global economy one trillion dollars and lost mm-hmm. productivity each year right, right? how are poor dead read that Mm-hmm. impacts, you know, just our productivity and people are calling mm-hmm. out, like, I think it averaged like 11.6 days a year due to issues around mental health. So like, mm-hmm. what if we did get a yearly check-in at least, mm-hmm. right. To just make sure like, Oh, okay. Things are okay. Or just, you mm-hmm. know, can I get a couple of sessions to kind of figure out where I am right now? Just a little check-in mm-hmm. needs to be done. And, and especially in the realm of healthcare that we should have check-ins, the thing that I mean, this could have so many conversations. Like, I mean, after, we we went down a whole nother yeah, rabbit hole. We have to have the education behind that too, because even with that mental health check in, mental health looks different in every culture, right? And a really yeah. big issue we have is misdiagnosis. Is what is mental health in some? If someone is saying that I'm having constant headaches, right? What is someone who's maybe practicing only through a Western um, medical uh, modality how do they look at that is the first thing that comes to mind anxiety be- because is that how their culture and their training has presented migraines do you know what I mean oh. and so the diagnosis can be huge and that happens a lot also in mental health my migraine diagnosis is always anger but we will do that on mm-hmm. another day <laughs> <laughs> mine always links right back to a feeling I'm sure that there are some physical reasons why people have migraines but I also say anger is the first one, unexpressed anger. Um, Well, ladies, we've done, I think personally, we've done a pretty good job, like scratching. We scratched the surface of why. Scratched it. We scratched it. Just like put a little like, (laughs) like not even like when monkey goes to like dig on my couch, like that kind of scratching, like just like a little nick. We put a little nick into why we have separated uh, minority mental health month from mental health month. Fortunately for us, 
we have the month of July to make sure that we really highlight it, but we will continue to highlight it because that is what we do and talk about how we all uh, look at this issue from a different lens and how can we um, continue to look at it from a di different lens and find commonalities that support all the groups together. Normally at this time, Anisha would ask some questions to our guest, but I mean, technically, I guess. We don't have any guests. <laughs> no. I mean, we haven't seen you for a while, Divya, but mm, I don't, you know, you're like, you're like family. You're going to get treated like family yeah. today. So Don is, um, he's going to pop in. Hey there. We see you. Um, you know, he's been listening and hanging out with us. You all remember Don. He's our amazing producer that takes good care of us in the background. He has been volunteered <laughs> to, <laughs> to ask some questions, and I don't know what they are. Again, I never know. Well, thank you for having me on, ladies. This is very nice. <laughs> Anisha went ahead and sent me some, some questions I could ask. Couldn't help yourself. <laughs> She sent me this list, and it's super long, so I'm not even going to attempt to look at all of them. <laughs> I just want to say, since we are we are welcoming back a you know a long lost person, our favorite Divya. Since all of you actually aren't able to see the videos that we're on, somebody had their hair done, their nails done, <laughs> but it wasn't Divya. <gasps> Nisha. She had a haircut last week. She did her own nails. And then <laughs> and then Divya comes on. She's wearing like a you should see her. She's wearing like a jean jacket. She's all put together. The rest of us <laughs> are still in quarantine outfits. So in that vein, we're gonna go ahead. I just want you to know that I'm dressed up. So <laughs> we, have a, we have an issue. Diana's like, wait a second. <laughs> I'm still in a quarantine outfit. We there's some stuff happening. Okay, okay. I'm, I'm just. I'm gonna have I'm just to saying. step up my game. <laughs> you didn't have your hair cut like somebody else did. So. Oh my God, no, no, I did so not. So speaking of that, since we're in that vein, since uh, fashion is something that I know you ladies enjoy, we're gonna ask this question. Okay. I just lost the question, so I gotta find it now. <laughs> and I will I will go in order of ascending since somebody's actually went out today and had wine apparently with their lunch. Um Divya can go. You got first. waited yeah, on. You can go first. <laughs> so they definitely wasn't me. Go ahead. What was the worst style choice you've ever made? Oh, I have a lot of them. <laughs> <laughs> I know, I know. I, I, mm -hmm. All right. Um, I used to have those, like, I don't even know how to describe them. Diana or Adnisha, maybe you will know what I'm talking about. Do you know those big sequin purses and the sequins are like the size of your eyeball? They're huge sequins. They're these really big sequin bags I was really obsessed with them and I would maybe carry like two pencils and a notebook and <laughs> it was a massive sequin bag I would take it everywhere um that's one of them um <laughs> Diana <laughs> it's a, okay so my sequin bag <laughs> um that 
Oh, what else is one of my maybe? I, probably the over the over the sequins. I'll just I'll, everything was sequin. Bag was sequin. I would have. Oh, oh, my other one. I actually thought of it. I bought these earrings to go to the aquarium when I was yeah. in high school. <laughs> I know. Long it's story. All, it's I needed everything perfect. to match, and it was there were these glittery dolphin earrings. <laughs> I wanted to wear them to the aquarium. I I fell in love with them, and so I would wear these glittery dolphin earrings just on a regular basis. So, you know, okay. that's also a kind of cringe fashion moment. But now I'm excited to hear from both of you. <laughs> oh, I mean, I my list is endless. I'm I I'm a product of the '80s and the real '80s, not like the remix that happened. <laughs> like <laughs> shoulder pads, ladies. Um, I, <laughs> I shaved my head like super, 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 super short on on the either side and the back, and just had like like real like oh, and then you know I I'm from like a Madonna like a virgin era, so there were the gloves and the the all the beads, all the pearls, all of them. <laughs> lace all of it mm. um yeah there yeah oh ooh. i'm like as i'm going down the list in my head it's just bad i mean then we could move to the 90s i, I just <laughs> like early 90s it just never doesn't get better for a while there probably not until probably didn't get better yeah woof Let's just let's just stick with the eighties. Shoulder pads. I went to a friend's wedding with uh, shoulder pads in my dress, shaved head, um, and like fifteen strands of pearls that I bought. Pearls, quote unquote, that I bought on St. Mark's Place. And every time she busts out the <laughs> picture from her wedding, I, it's like I'm mortified. Plus, I had a perm in high school. Oh wow! Big one. You need to show us this picture from this wedding at some yeah. time. Or, or the perm. I mean, I had a perm <laughs> and blue eyeshadow, and like, oh. I, yeah, no, no, Ooh. it goes on forever. The blue eyeshadow. Anisha, <laughs> uh, you must have had something on your mind when you asked this question. Um, no, I, I didn't know he would ask this. Um, I think that I'm a product of the '90s. And so there was a time that if anybody remembers the group crisscross, they no, were really- no, you wore the clothes backwards. You did it. I wore clothes backwards. Um, I also remember wearing like really, really baggy jeans. And I can't remember what those shirts called when it's like the onesie, right? Like it snaps on the bottom. <laughs> <laughs> and, and so, it, so it's like a, a unitard thing. Oh, it, so, so right, like yes. Yeah, so it was like a so it was like a unitard, and then I would have baggy jeans on, and I would pull the baggy jeans like below the waist, so you could see that it was a unitard. <laughs> <laughs> oh, yeah. I remember that. Well, I think I thought that, that I might have like missed that. I was right. I'm older than you, so I definitely didn't do that. Which oh yeah could probably I did that I mean did um, I no I didn't I didn't do that I had to like think about it for a second oh, yeah nope didn't do that one there were so so many I'm seven. pretty sure I saw someone in a music video doing that and so I 
thought it was cool and um I would borrow my brother's pants and sometimes I would just buy really big jeans because I wanted to be like him we were like two years apart that were close so I kind of wanted to look like him at times so yeah I wore big baggy clothes at times didn't really look good on me but I wore it <laughs> so thank uh, you for that Don taking me back all, all of there will be <laughs> pictures of all of these in the show notes don't worry ladies uh, <laughs> oh, no. We yeah, I mean, I threw out. I had a picture the other day. I was a, I guess I told the team. I didn't talk about it here that I was a cigarette girl in the eighties. So there was that in a club. I was a club cigarette girl. So I wore that outfit, but that's never that's never going to be seen in the show notes. That's just a secret, <laughs> a secret that we've just put out here. A secret now podcast. for all of the listeners. Yes, exactly. I got one more if you'd like. Oh, okay. <laughs> okay. So in this is a variation of the usual what's your favorite 90s jam. This is going to be a little bit different. This is if your life was, uh, let's say, a TV show or you whatever you want to call it, you walk into a room and what is your walk into the room theme song? Like this is playing when you walk into the room and people are just oh. like, you just got introduced to Jimmy Fallon and you're on the tonight show and they're playing a theme song for you. What would it be? <laughs> mm. Oh, that's a hard one. That's really hard. I think for, it really depends on my mood. <laughs> How about we'll preface it. How about if you're trying to impress a crush? Or you want to impress your frenemy. Okay. All right. I got it. I'm coming out dancing to Beyonce's Crazy in Love. And I'm letting him oh. know that if me and you are together, it's going to be a lot of love, a lot of craziness, and a lot of fun. So there it is. <laughs> well, that's a good one. Taking it with the uh-uh, 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 uh-uh. Yeah, okay. <laughs> um... Is that with or without the leotard? Probably with. Probably with. Yeah. Let's do it that way. Um, I don't know if I can answer this question. I was hoping you could, Diana, because I'm struggling to think of an answer. I think I'm thinking too into it. <laughs> well, I mean, at first, uh, it was the walking into the room one. I yeah. like how, how would I walk into the room and command the room, which was easier for me than the song than the other two. I was I, I went with Aretha and respect. And then um how would I how would I crazy in love without crazy in love? I don't crazy know. in love was a good one, Adnisha. I know. We should have maybe you should have asked us each a separate question. <laughs> <laughs> All right, how about this then? Who was your childhood crush, actor, actress? LL Cool J. Done. <laughs> I mean, how far he, back are we going? <laughs> he touched my hand at the Apollo Theater, and I didn't wash my hand for two days. I would hold it outside of the um, shower, so it wouldn't get away. <laughs> wow. Okay. How far back are we going? How far old back do you, you go? How, I mean, because the first one I thought of was Johnny Osmond, so... Just there it is. I'll leave it. I'll leave it there. It's so funny because my answer is gonna really show all of our age. 
<laughs> Please because tell me. My middle school days were like in the 2000s, like earlier mid 2000s when I was, you know, finding all my celeb crush loves. And I had two pictures that were right on my door that before I'd go into my room, I'd always like say hello to these people on my wall. And I'd be like, I'm back from school. And one of them, <laughs> one of them was Justin Bieber. The other one was Nick Ooh. Jonas. <laughs> oh, and they greeted you at the door. They, they, they would wait for me just That's patiently so nice. every day. While every day they just hung out and waited for you until you got home from school. <laughs> making Taking shifts. Making sure that mm-hmm. the door was secure. Making sure I had a great day. Checked in on me. It was, it was great. <laughs> that <laughs> is amazing. So thank you all for listening today. Uh, if, in fact, you find yourself after this conversation thinking that it's time to reach out to a therapist, please reach out to Be Well Psychotherapy. You heard us today in our uh, our new commercial. And text Be Well to 484848. And until then, we are still in a time where we should always be washing our hands. So stay safe, keep washing your hands, and we're going to stop here. Yes. (laughs) (laughs) We're going to stop here. Thank you so much. (laughs) Thank you for listening to the Be Real podcast. Stay connected to us and subscribe to Be Real wherever you listen to podcasts. And if you are feeling it, how about a five-star review? If our conversation sparked a question, join us in the Be Real podcast Facebook group. We hope that you have walked away with some new insights, curiosities, and ideas to better help you on your journey to mental wellness and overall well-being. I encourage you to go to bewellpsychotherapy.com and check out our services and programs. Again, that's bewellpsychotherapy.com. Okay, we have to stop here, but I'll see you next week.